This is Decentralized, the Decentralized Trials and Research Podcast. We gather here with friends and guests to talk about the latest ways to make research and clinical trials around the world more inclusive, more accessible, more resilient, and more sustainable, all by using decentralized methods. This podcast is recorded live on Clubhouse every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, on the TGIF DCT show at the Decentralized Trials Club. You can join the live sessions and add your voice every Friday at noon Eastern time with the free Clubhouse app by following the Decentralized Trials Club. And of course, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform to get notified of new episodes. Following the club and subscribing will also help you stay current for any of the bonus content we may drop. And now, it's time to decentralize. Hello and welcome. You've now joined us here on TGIF DCT here on Clubhouse, as well as the Decentralized Podcast, depending on where you might be and when you might be joining us. For those of you joining us here live, we gather here every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, to discuss wide-ranging topics around the adoption and the barriers for decentralized research globally. We do that here on the Clubhouse platform, so join us here on Fridays, 12 to 1, when the month is not August, because we will be taking a little bit of a live hiatus for the next few weeks. If Fridays at 12 are not your cup of tea, or for the West Coast, not your cup of morning coffee or whatever your drink may be in the mornings. Uh, We also rebroadcast through your favorite podcast platforms as the Decentralized Podcast. So whether you're here through your favorite podcast platform or on Clubhouse, give a follow, uh, give a subscribe, whatever that button says, that's going to be an opportunity to make sure you know about new content that we may drop during the week. And speaking of dropping content during the week, we'll keep sharing content over the next week by sharing some favorite uh, replays uh, throughout the month of August. And so we'll miss being with you live for the next few weeks, but at the very least, you'll enjoy hearing from some of the guests who've joined us over the last few months, really, I guess, over the last almost two years that we've been doing this now. Keep in mind, if there's a topic that you'd love to see us cover uh, when we return in September, join our schedule by just dropping a message to Jane, Amir, or myself. If you don't know how to reach us through LinkedIn, Twitter, or other uh, other messaging tools, threads, um, drop an email to secretariat at dtra.org. You can let the team there know about the topic you'd love to see us cover, and even better, if you'd like to step on stage and join us as a co-host. Remember, our topics are are really broad in terms of what we've discussed here and continue to, from technical considerations and interoperability, regulation and policy, patient factors around access, experience, diversity, equity, environmental considerations. Uh, Really, the list is very long and continues to grow, and we're always happy to hear new perspectives. Amir, 
Yeah, I just want to add one thing. Um, just to be clear, we're, we're not turning European. What I, so uh, we will be sadly still working. So if you're involved with DTRA, I'm sure you'll be hearing from Jane about something. If you've been involved in the FDA guidance response, I'm sure you'll hear from Jane and see our work there. So if you need to talk to us anytime, uh, this does not mean we're all, you know, gone to Europe for, for the month, unfortunately. So we are still around. We're just taking a bit of a break for the podcast. Yeah. I am glad that with your accent, the comment was made that we're not going European about taking the summer off rather than in my abrasive New York accent. Well, sadly, Craig, my lovely red European passport has become a beautiful blue British passport. So so I'm technically not European for a short while. I'm, I'm sure it'll be sorted out, but <laughs> for the moment, yes. Yeah. <laughs> fair, very fair, very fair. Um, yeah, really, uh, I, I just think, you know, in the summer, our, our regular listeners are busy on their Fridays, hopefully headed to the beach and other fabulous things this time of year. So we'll, uh, we'll keep working in the background, but for these live gatherings, we'll pick it all back up in September, and we'd love to hear from all of you around the topics you'd love to see us cover. Uh, for those of you joining us live, the chat is open, so we'll certainly be looking for perspectives folks are bringing there. This week, we're we're kind of topicless. Our topic is more around the trends in a, almost a mid-year uh, recap or a mid-year review. What are we seeing and sensing as it comes to site adoption, as it comes to industry implementation and change and flux in the industry? around the impact of uh, regulatory clarity and our guidance and recommendations clarifying or confusing, um, the implications of different stakeholders that have been coming in or out of the market, like retail pharmacy, where it almost feels like uh, like a game of whack-a-mole where one pharmacy uh, chain may leave the space and three others enter. Um, and so, you know, these trends, um, we'd love to hear from all of you around what you're seeing and sensing that you're either intrigued or curious about, that you're excited or worried about as we are in this midpoint in 2023. Amir, what are you excited or worried about as we're uh, coming to the end of the month of July? Um, I don't really have the worry gene, so I don't worry about much. I will say everyone should be thinking about the impact of AI, no question about that. I think. If you remember the other week, um, we had our friend Richie Etwari on, who's very knowledgeable about these things. And I think the one thing I disagreed with him on was his more classic optimism about new ways of technology and how people will find other jobs. Um, I'm not quite sure this time is the same. So that's the only thing I would say. The usual optimistic Amir is not particularly optimistic about, uh, but I'm not really worrying about it. I'm just thinking how it will impact everyone and what we can do about that. Um, in terms of what I'm excited about, I think when we come back, we'll definitely have all the schedule for, you know, DTRA meeting, what, what we're actually showcasing. I think a lot of that is things we may discuss today, even in terms of what's been happening this year, what we might be looking forward to. And same with Summit back to back, like there's a lot of topics that are top of mind for people that we will uh, address, including uh, some lessons learned, right, from folks like CVS. So we'll be addressing all those live for sure in November, but I think those are all, as you said, kind of things people think about. I'm glad you don't have the worry, Gene, uh, Amir. Uh, it's probably what keeps you so young. Um, Jane, you have a uh, always have a lot of different 
perspective swirling. Uh, what are what are the what are the are there certain trends or areas that are on your mind as either sources of hope or hype, optimism or worry? Yeah, my brain is full, <laughs> but I think it's way more on the optimism than the worry side. And part of that is because I feel like, honestly, we couldn't be getting a clearer signal across the regulatory agencies that they expect trials to be, be modernized and become more patient-friendly. That doesn't mean they don't want them to be site-friendly. But when you start to see the collective voices of regulatory weighing and saying, yeah, we, we need to do better and we want to help you, that gives me a lot of hope. Ooh, I like that picture. Well, before we get all overexcited about hope and optimism, I think there are, you know, areas that do linger in my mind for where we are right now. You know, I think that this year has been bumpy for pharma pipelines and biotech pipelines, and that's certainly been, you know, implic uh, having implications for trial uh, innovation and implementation in general, including decentralized, as both our smaller biotech companies are um, still rebounding around investment. And our larger biotech companies earlier this year had been either stalling or reprioritizing assets around trepidation related to reimbursement secondary to the Inflation Reduction Act. I like to think that that seems to have been normalizing a bit, and it feels like there's more momentum now. Certainly looking at CRO earnings reports, that's starting to feel like the pipeline is moving. Um, I think that sites still have a lot of um, challenge in the environment right now, certainly around staffing and resourcing and balancing those um, staff constraints with the demands of a cacophony of different technology uh, from sponsors and CROs and how can we best manage implementation and adoption together and what can we learn at this point in the year that can help us to do better uh, for the rest of 23. And, you know, I also see so much enthusiasm around regulatory clarity right now and the uh, positions that we have now from EMA and FDA, clarifications coming from uh, Taiwan and uh, pending in areas like Japan and in China, but very often with those um, clarifications come other sources of concern and ambiguity. What's a, uh, what's a delegation log versus a task log? And uh, how can we take advantage of this opportunity to engage healthcare providers in these clinical trials in smart ways without creating even more risk, vulnerability, or exposure for investigators who ultimately have responsibility when it comes to oversight. So I feel like there's there there's a lot of reason for optimism right now. There are, I don't want to say that my worry gene is kind of buzzing in the background, but there are still a lot of areas for us to sort out, navigate, and clarify together. Amir? I think that was a really good summary, Craig, that you, what you've described really maybe is the optimism around whether it's technology, whether it's tools, whether it's people kind of thinking about these issues more broadly. And then it's kind of surrounded by this bigger ecosystem of finances and the economy and the Inflation Reduction Act. And so I think that's very true. I think there's a lot of hope for optimism where we have, whether it's on the science, right? I think right now, 
we're doing better on the science than ever. We're solving things, you know, like obesity or like, I'm not sure about Alzheimer's yet, but, you know, there, there's definitely movement on the science side, no question, across multiple areas. I could have named 20 others. But as you said, there's this sort of uncertainty in the macro systems, kind of the cloud over that, right? Well, you're bringing up, you know, the amazing progress we have in science reminds me of conversations I've had with uh, Kelly McKee at MediData, and I see she's uh, here joining us in the audience right now, um, where we've talked about how are we able to run studies based on such incredible science, gene therapy, and other mechanisms that we might have only dreamed about in the past, and yet we find folks fearful that e-consent brings too much risk to implement in a study. Um, we are able to do such incredible things and navigate risk with incredible and emerging science, even just looking at you know, the pace of, uh, of vaccine development. Um, and yet some of these mundane operational issues are suddenly looked at with greater fear and risk than some of our science. Jane, I see you've got the quizzical icon Posed, or maybe I don't know which it is. It's a question mark and an exclamation point. Which, which mood is that? It's both. It puzzles me, but it's not new. This um, tolerance for risk is different in different parts of pharma development cycles. And I agree wholeheartedly with Kelly. It seems illogical. And that, I guess that's why I'm hoping we can work together to do better. And I heard in a meeting I was in yesterday with some other members. That's why they're here too. Well, we are gonna deviate from our norm, which is having fabulous guests join us and converse with them for about 30 minutes before opening up the floor. Today, the floor is yours. We've thrown out a lot of great areas of optimism and also some of the areas where we clearly have to do better and keep learning and sharing and making progress together. We'd love to hear from the folks that are here with us live in Clubhouse. Uh, feel free to take advantage of your little hand raising icon. You can jump up and join us here on stage. We also have great conversation happening in the chat and we'll try to do our best to copy that chat conversation over into, uh, into our spoken conversation as well. If you're multitasking and on a Zoom in parallel and constrained to using the chat, I, I hear you. Um, we have our first willing participant, hopefully volunteered and not voluntold. Welcome back, Sarah. Feel free to reintroduce yourself for folks who may not remember you from uh, your recent participation as a host. And Sarah, your uh, unmute button hopefully is down there in the lower right. Thank you. That was user error, Craig. Um, it's great to be back. Um, for those that don't know me, um, I'm Sarah McKeon Cannon. I am with Langland, um, and I spend most of my time focusing on improving the clinical trial experience um, for our patients um, and their families. Something that I think for me has been really interesting um, over the course of this first year is some of the topics we've been discussing around diversity, equity and inclusion, um, in particularly the intersection between different dimensions of diversity. I think last year in particular, we really focused on race and ethnicity 
and how DCT can really improve um, participation in clinical trials from some of those communities. But this year, I think there's been a lot more of a trend talking about how we think about the intersections between race and ethnicity, but also LGBTIQA plus communities, those who are neurodiverse. And I think we're making some great progress in discussing and thinking about how we can use DCT to be even more accessible and stop thinking about diversity as a monolith. You know, Sarah, that's a, such an interesting perspective. And I learned so much when I'm on different calls with patient advocacy leaders and other stakeholders who keep expanding my view around DE&I, which I think you're right, for so many of us coming out of the social justice movements of the last two or three years, really had eyes focused initially on race and ethnicity, and rightfully so. Um, and now it feels like while we haven't solved all those issues, there are a lot more expansive groups and other stakeholders who are stepping forward and raising their hands saying, you know, I'm not feeling included either, whether it's because of orientation and identity, whether it's um, other other groups. Uh, for example, I saw um, a, a group uh, representing um, Arab Americans feeling like uh, their voice was not being heard or uh, or represented well. I think it's fascinating, you know, to call out neurodivergent communities. I still wonder if we're being inclusive for those who are visually impaired, where so much of our material requires the ability for one to be able to see an app or to be able to read a printed consent. Um, and so it's really fascinating to see these definitions expand. You know, one other comment, you know, I'll share and I'd love to hear, you know, from, from others in the room around, you know, I also see a lot of patients step forward and say, um, comorbidities are excluding them. And, you know, we, we restrict our eligibility criteria for a reason, right? To try to improve our ability to detect a signal and because our safety profile is, is still being determined and better characterized. But for many uh, complex conditions, uh, chronic conditions, individuals with comorbidities are, are being left behind. And so how can we be more inclusive, whether it's through expanded access or other parallel initiatives to make sure that, that those stakeholders are, are being captured and, uh, and reflected in some of our development efforts? Other folks here that, you know, are, are also kind of sensing this widening of scope and perspective around uh, around diversity. Jane, Amir. You know, I'm going to be obvious. I think gender plays a role here, too, Craig. Maybe I'm having a Barbie moment, but <laughs> we're still not really getting a representative population across gender. And thank you, Sarah, for bringing up gender identity. That's another area. So I'm glad we're expanding our thinking on diversity. You know, it's interesting. And, and I feel like because of concentrated efforts um, and I am forgetting the I'll pull it up, the Society for, I think, Women in Research, if I remember the proper name. I mean, they've been at this for a few decades and really have done amazing work moving the needle. And maybe 
maybe we're not learning enough from some of the uh, the multi-decade efforts that that have uh, driven some of the shift in the needle that at least has happened around gender. Amir? So the, the only comment I'll make is maybe because no one's made it is it's interesting because kind of an elephant in the room right now is the strong pushback actually on DEI, whether it's at state universities, you know, in certain states, whether it's, you know, Supreme Court. So this may be more of a US thing right now, but there's definitely a kind of a, what you could call a backlash towards DEI initiatives. Including, you know, led by a presidential candidate that not long ago was a biotech uh, CEO. A biotech CEO with a robust ESG platform and program inside of that organization that in some ways is almost like an ESG uh, reference point for others, which, you know, is always fascinating, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of pushback right now, so it's not exactly uh, smooth sailing uh, for that, for sure. It's a great point where, you know, we... We need diversity in trials, not just for purposes of equity or wanting to make trials look woke to appease an agenda. This is for purposes of science to make sure that the data that's generated can be properly applied for all of those who will ultimately be prescribed these medicines for purposes of efficacy and safety. But it is very easy to get sw swept up with our political polarization in this country and is that going to stall some of the progress that's needed for good science wow amir yep. i didn't see us going uh going into a woke uh anti-woke conversation today talk well, I mean, about yeah. polarizing topics nicely done yeah. well no i mean i think it's it's um something everyone is kind of elephants in the room right it's worth uh, just saying that you know those things exist right now right they certainly do. Kelly? Well, I was going to say, speaking of things that exist, can we talk about the aliens if we're going to go into that realm? That's great, Kelly. <laughs> well, I've, I've, I've briefly looked at it. It doesn't, it, I'm, I'm still uh, I'm not sure whether what they testified really means that they found aliens. So it's still somewhat hazy, right? Yeah. And, you know, it was a joke. We could talk about that offline. But I was just going to say that, um, you know, I think I think we're getting in our own way. Um, I don't think that this needs to be so hard. Really, you need to look at the population that's going to eventually, hopefully, benefit from the approved medication or vaccine or device and then mirror it in your patient population. And we need to make clinical trials easier to participate in. And we need to, you know, really design them around real patients instead of perfect patients for the science. And we need to enable them with technology because technology is all around. And so I think that we could talk about all of the various nuances that go into every little thing, or we could just sort of take a pragmatic approach and say, we got to get this done. We have tools that help us to get it done. So let's just do it. Well, let's let me uh, first off. It's great to have you, Kelly. Uh, 
take a moment, uh, reintroduce yourself if, uh, if anyone here is not familiar with you and your fabulous Oh, thank work. you, Craig. Um, and hello, sorry I didn't introduce myself before. My name is Kelly McKee. I um, lead DCTs and patient registries at Metadata. Um, and I've been doing this for a long time and uh, it's great to be here. Thanks so much, Kelly. So let me let me take a little deeper into that because I totally agree that on the one hand, we should be able to look at the patient population that will be um, the population being uh, um, uh, targeted for a new medicine um, that's uh, that the medicine is expected to benefit and we should run studies that ultimately represent that population. But how many dimensions can we segment that population into? Um, it was kind of easier when we just said, um, there are boys and girls. And then we start to say, well, there's boys and girls of different ages, young and old. And then we start to segment again and say, well, actually there are boys and girls in different ages and folks of different color um, and race and ethnic backgrounds. But as Sarah's pointing out, we can keep segmenting to be more inclusive and more representative, but the more we do that, the harder it's going to be for us to fill all of those cells and truly have like this clinical trial melting pot that represents absolutely everybody. Um, so do, is there a line where it starts to get just impractical or unfeasible or how do we keep um, expanding this, this pot? I certainly have a perspective on this. Um, I think we need to look at what is the common thread between the lived experience of those audiences that we're trying to engage with. And that common thread could be that patients with a particular condition no longer want to be a burden. And then we celebrate the differences of each of those individuals by reaching out to them in ways that matters to them in through mechanisms that matter whether that is through the pharmacy whether that is through digital media or through a conversation with their physician and then enable them to participate in a way that makes sense for them i think it's quite interesting as we look at race and ethnicity in particular we often now make assumptions around why individuals may or may not want to participate in research and we're then perpetuating the problem. So for me, it's really finding that common thread that connects all of us as actual human beings, regardless of those um, differences, but then creating some nuances to factor in those different um, those differences that are between us so um i would love to kelly dig a bit deeper into kind of what you the can that you opened um and i'll throw in some worms in a minute um can you give some examples of how we get in our own way maybe in industry yeah absolutely so let's just take the let's get rid of the term subject from our vernacular which i think hopefully everybody on this call um, agrees with well then we start talking about well is it going to be participant or volunteer or human volunteer or patient or let's just get rid of the word subject 
period. You know, it's like things like that. And I think we're even sort of going down right now about like, well, how many ways do we need to look into diversity? Well, how about we just make it easier for everybody to participate and ensure that we're not just targeting one group, for example? Um, those are just two um, examples that come to mind. But I think that we can be very academic and talk about things for a long time, but we what we really need to do is is act upon them. Sure, I think let's take your subject example first. I mean, that to me may be an example of kind of a clash of cultures, right? So you've got the, your classical research scientist culture of, you know, the, we do research to, to people and, you know, they're subjects of our research and we're not treating them. Uh, versus maybe a new wave of people working in the street that think differently. So that's, I see that as kind of a no different to many, many other culture kind of clashes we have going on right now. So that's for sure. Uh, you mentioned kind of earlier about let's be pragmatic and just let's do it. I guess my question, which will be challenging, would be we're assuming that the entities in our industry, um, that assumes in a way that we are trying to do the right thing right, that we're really doing this because of patients. But one could argue that many entities are either very well-run law firms that happen to be in the life sciences or very well-run financial innovation firms that happen to be in the life sciences. And the question is, you know, is the core of those companies necessarily interested in, you know, doing the things you're saying, which is just be pragmatic, do what's right for patients. Is that really true for some entities? Well, I'm not about to speak on behalf of large companies, but I can speak on, by, on behalf of myself and many friends on this call that I do believe that many of us are in it in, within this industry to make clinical trials easier, more accessible, and frankly, just an option for more people. Totally agree. I think if you're on this call, probably if you're kind of on the trenches and the front lines, there's no question about that. Um, but I guess what I'm trying to say, just like earlier when we were alluding to, there's a lot of exciting things happening, but there's a macro kind of environment that's kind of difficult. Uh, I guess that's what I'm getting at is kind of there is a macro environment that's different to the scientists or others who are really trying their best to make it better at every level for patients, right? For sure, Amir. And by the way, that was sort of a mic drop, like, wow, are we really dealing with legal and financial entities when we're trying to do science? Okay, I'm diverting from that. Um, but I'll add to Kelly's thought that we get in our way with a different example, one that I hope we're trying to solve. And, and that is in the guidance from the FDA, a new tool was named the task log. And I've had the pleasure of trying to work with people in our collab on what's that like? What do you need to include? When do you use it? Should it be the same as the delegation of authority log with some new fields? And the point is those conversations went down so many rabbit holes. It really reinforced to me, we do think of the 0.01% situation as a norm. And I know we have to be very risk averse and we have to be conscious of risk, 
I do think we would help ourselves if we went to the 90-10 instead of the 99.999 versus 001. I don't know how we're going to get there. It's just not built in the way we think as operators. You know, I think, Amir, you raise also some interesting points as far as um, some of the constraints for all of us that we have to operate under uh, in terms of where funding is coming from. And, you know, I, I have certain views on the role of private equity in our space that, you know, we um, sometimes, you know, I, I think there's too much private equity. Uh, investment flowing around in our space where folks who focus just on the balance sheets are, are are driving a lot of decision making. That's not true for all private equity investors, but I think it's true for too many private equity investors. Now, there is a story to be made that more diversity in clinical trials is good for the bottom line, that enrolling more people around any given research site it's just good for business, right? It will help accelerate enrollment and recruitment. If every one of our sites is only able to enroll a bunch of white people, then they're only gonna be able to perform at 50% efficiency at best. And so it's good for business. And you know that's a fine story, but it, it sometimes feels like these right things to do priorities get bumped to the backseat. Um, because of other investor priorities. So on that cheery note, I'm gonna just remind folks that we're at the bottom of the hour. And if you are just joining us on this cheery topic, you are here on either Clubhouse, where we gather every Friday, 12 to one Eastern, to talk about decentralized trials and their, um, their opportunities and challenges, or you might be listening to us on our decentralized podcast through your favorite podcast platform. Wherever you may be today, take advantage of the subscribe or follow button here on Clubhouse. That's in your upper left on your screen where it says decentralized trials. If you're in the car, pull over immediately and you know hit that subscribe button. That's That's clearly your first priority at this particular moment. Today we are talking just about a mid-year recap. We're sharing some reflections with folks in the community on where we are today in the cycle in 23. What's working well? What are we excited about? What's not working well? What are we worried about and need to do better on? Uh, we have on the stage with us some friends like Sarah Cannon from Langland, Kelly McKee from Medidata, and as always, I am joined by my friends Jane Miles and Amir Kalali. Also remember this favorite call out that Amir reminds me of and I always forget. Give a tap on the profiles of folks, not just here on the stage, but here in the room with you. They share your interest in today's topic. And so if you are here on Clubhouse or listening to a replay on through Clubhouse at a later date, you can tap those profiles. Those might be great folks for you to connect with through LinkedIn or other ways. They could be your next partner to solve a key challenge that you're, uh, that you're working to address. How did I do, Amir? What did what did I miss with my with my Half mid always. my yeah. mid session check in <laughs> on our mid year recap? Well, Half. 
Now, Kelly, uh, when you came to the stage, was it was it building on that diversity theme that was on your mind, or did you have other areas that you are either particularly excited and enthusiastic about, or feel like are areas now that we're kind of checking in at mid-year that we just need to do better? Oh, I was voluntold to come up, Craig, but <laughs> I am always excited about DCTs and about improving access awareness and inclusion in clinical trials as well. Um, you know, I, I'm happy to, you know, throw something out there for the group to discuss. Um, you know, at what point do we stop talking about DCTs as an entity separate from clinical trials? Like, when is the technology just going to roll in and, and this is how we do um, clinical trials, whether they be, you know, some be fully virtual, the majority be what we are now calling hybrid, and then, you know, hopefully very few or entirely paper-based, if any at all. Sure. So, Kelly, um, I guess the same uh, mantra has been by the digital health people for how many years now? At some point, digital health would just be called health, but we seem to still be having to call it digital health. Why do you think that is? The same reason we're still saying subject, Amir, people don't like to change. I think it's going to shift when you start designing with the end in mind, honestly. And I think we're still at the front end of that curve. Most people are still experiencing trials that adopted these methods as a mechanism to preserve them. And I do think that when you start with the intention of shifting to be more patient and site focused using both tech and services, and maybe even eliminating some assessments, my goodness, that's going to help us do it. But this is not a sport where you just observe. You must participate to help it change. I think, Jane, you're, you're pulling on a really interesting thread here, right? So our goal is, how do we just normalize this? And it becomes normalized when it's just sort of consistently used where it's most appropriate. And where we make those decisions does tend to be in the, during that study design and planning process. And so it's interesting to think about the study design process today and what's evolving and trending there and where do we expect these decentralized methods to just kind of get baked in and folded into that process and when it does does that just sort of render a lot of this conversation as just normal and and normalized there's obviously like a great transformation happening around study design and planning there are cool tools that are data-driven, um, that are being used more and more in life sciences uh, with CROs and pharma and other stakeholders, using these tools to use data to understand what types of decisions are maybe best for any given study. Um, is that the right place to keep maybe pursuing this intersection with decentralized methods? And will that help to accelerate the path to normal, Amir? Well, also, I mean, if you look, think about some of our initiatives at DTRA, like regulatory gaps and ambiguity, there's clearly still barriers for companies to feel comfortable being able to deploy these, you know, uh, in global studies. So there are some very real barriers that we need to solve before we can consider, you know, business as usual. Yes, and I'm going to be the voice of reality 
here for a sec, because I got surprised at DIA on a panel I was able to participate in. We pulled the audience, and these were people who were interested in patient per perceptions of DCTs. But we started with a polling question, well, who's including patients in the design process of the people in the room? And it was 42%. And I was shocked and sort of puzzled, like, how long have we been talking about this and how many ways are there to do it, Craig? And it's still not even half of that audience. So that's a great example, right? Because for when, when I was in pharma a minute ago, the place that we started to try to go to normalize patient insights was during the design process and just to make it a part of protocol development and to make it an expectation when you were going to a protocol review committee that you could show what insights were gleaned from patients and how it affected the design of your study. Um, but are we putting too much burden on the protocol design process? Can it actually expand to influence and, and shape all innovative things that we should be doing? Um, or is that going to just become bogged down with opportunities? Well, I'm back to the design with the end in mind. So that means you get the patients in the room and the sites in the room and the people who will help you stand up the protocol in the room, not just the scientists and biostatisticians, but I don't get to make all those decisions. It is kind of remarkable, though, in this day and age, and I know we, we, we preach to the choir a lot, and I'm sure if we polled the people in this room or the, our listeners in general and asked that same question, do you engage with patients for input in the design and planning of your studies, we'd see tremendous consensus. But of course, a lot of you are, are kind of enriched. You're kind of activated on this topic. That's why you chose to be here. So. Kelly, how do we how do we go viral? How do we all grab you know two friends and kind of pull them into this metaverse? Yeah, I can't answer those big questions, Craig, because we've been trying for a long time. You've always been trying some different you know viral <laughs> ways to try and grab a friend in, um, you know whether it's through social platforms or other other kind of you know ways to bring that story into your own doctor's office. Um, and wave the flag about research participation. Um, you know, I, I, I wonder what else all of us can do to, you know, bring one other person into this conversation about including patients, about designing with the end in mind. I think we just have to keep at it, right? We have to keep talking to everybody about it, getting excited about it, talking and showing the benefits of it. Um, I, I hope that we, you know, continue to make progress, but we've, we have been talking about this for a long, long time. You know, I just want to do a couple of shout outs uh, for some of the conversation in the chat. Um, I see one note from Kevin on that conversation about uh, gender neutral language and making sure that we're using gender neutral language when um, even in, in areas where we're talking about uh, excluding pregnant people or requiring birth control for those who may become pregnant. It's really just such an expansive time for us to just make sure that 
like again politics aside just making sure that when we're engaging patients and participants in our study that we're being you know clear and inclusive um, so that we can get the data that we need that's truly representative Scott Stout, thanks for joining us up here on the stage. Introduce yourself for folks who haven't had the pleasure to share your thoughts on today's topic. Hi, Craig. Uh, this is always fun. Um, my name is Scott Stout. I'm the CEO of MedVector. And um, where I wanted to kind of jump in here is, is I get frustrated a little bit when I hear people saying, we need more clarity on this. When... In fact, we actually have a real opportunity in the ambiguity of the language to where the FDA is potentially giving us latitude to act and demonstrate best practices. And everyone seems so afraid that they're constantly, well, we need more clarity. And so the, there's something that I like to remind people when I talk to them, and it's, it's DCT, this term, decentralized clinical trials, was it? coined by the FDA it was coined by us and we started using it. We started talking about it like that way. And, and then, and it forced regulatory to then regulate it. And so we have this real opportunity right now where the FDA is looking at us going, show us, we are, we are behind you, create a defensible position with that works within the guidance and do it and prove that it works. And, and let's remember that the FDA is all about efficacy and patient safety. And so if we follow the guidelines and stay in bounds, we have the opportunity to be leaders and we have the opportunity to define how it's going to work moving forward. And so this is a really cool moment. So instead of being scared, let's all get on the same page. Let's use the same glossary. Let's, let's, when we're talking about the DOA, let's make sure that we're all talking about who needs to be on the DOA rather than asking for clarity. Let's just do it. That's my thought. So, I think we're there, Scott, but, <laughs> but we're not the only people in the room making the decisions. And if you, and I'm thinking a little bit back to my past, when you're making a multi-billion dollar investment on an asset, trying to get it through rigorous clinical testing to demonstrate that safety and efficacy so that you can get it approved for marketing and patient access, you will de-risk everything in your power so that you can achieve that goal. I, I'm just, I, I believe totally that we have to show them that there isn't a huge increased risk. They're looking for data. I, I totally agree. And I, I appreciate the, the, the metrics behind it. There's, there is a component of this that we all forget about on the ClinOps side, and it's the value of these patents. And the, you know, the longer we stall, every day delayed in clinical trials is a day lost of patent protection. And a lot of us forget how valuable these patents are on the backside. So, for example, Humera's patent, it just expired in February, and the value of that patent was $20.5 million a day. So that's the power of, of getting to market more quickly. And, and we're at this precipice where, where we actually can start implementing some of the new technologies. I get the, the, the risk of it. I, I understand the, the scariness of it. But there's another funny dynamic within pharma that I haven't seen in other industries. 
And it's, I find that the smartest person in the room when having a, a conversation with farm execs is typically the person that has the ability to identify the risks that no one else can see. And this, this is good, right? And this is an important concept. Um, but another way of saying that is it's the person who's the best at saying no. And so this is just a huge hurdle that we have to overcome as an industry with. And, and Jane, you're absolutely right. It's, it's how do we weigh the risk versus the reward? So Scott, this is Amir. Can you remind us, uh, you sound like your classic entrepreneur with urgency, right? So have you worked in very large corporations? Uh, I, I have. Um, in fact, I've worked in okay. very heavy compliance corporations, um, right. you know, like like Morgan Stanley, you know, where so, you know, yes. emails that go out are, are auto-checked and, and you know, you, you get your hand slapped for, for saying the wrong, wrong thing. Yeah. You know, I, I, yeah, I was actually right. subpoenaed by the DOJ one. So then, right. That's great. So that's no surprise to you then, linking back to my comment a bit earlier about very well law firms run that happen to be in life sciences. So I think when you're talking mm -hmm. about why do people keep asking for clarity, why don't they leverage the ambiguity, which entrepreneurs would, right? But I think that's the reality when we talk about large corporations where there's more lawyers and scientists sometimes, that that's, I think, why people feel so constricted in what they can do. I mean, I talk every day with large company people who are very smart, they know what they need to do, just like Kelly would say, just do it. But guess what? They have a million lawyers just telling them they can't and not giving them very good reason necessarily, but as uh, Jane said, kind of de-risking in their eyes. So I think this is a very good problem that you bring up, which is kind of this challenge we have in a highly regulated uh, industry and how possibly compliance and lawyers, which are there for good reasons sometimes, but that is a bit challenge for people to kind of really the inertia of changing. Okay. 100%. And, and one, uh, one yes and I'll drop on that is, um, you know, sometimes we point to the lawyers in our organization, but sometimes people aren't even asking the lawyers in the organization. It's, there's so many that watch law and order and then show up at work the next day and feel it's their job to be the lawyer and want to play lawyer. And I think that's where they feel very comfortable that nobody is fired for saying no. Um, and so it's, you know, I, I, I was on a call two days ago with a pharma team that's just doing some incredible work together with their, their legal and compliance folks. When they lay out the problem clearly that needs to be addressed and bring them as, in as partners, look, it's not universal, but I had that as my own experience working in pharma, you know, to find lawyers and compliance folks as partners in these challenges. I think we point to the lawyers and say it's their fault, but some of us aren't even asking them. And I do want to, you know, give Scott, you know, give you a shout out about watch what you ask for, because, you know, guidance and regulation when it's um, when it leaves openings for some stakeholders is viewed as frightening and for others creates opportunities to work within the existing constraints. We did decentralized trials long before there was guidance. Um, you know, we did them in my last company. We tried 17 years ago and many on this call have, have done, you know, some well before guidance existed. Guidance will help create some clarity and remove ambiguity for some. And for other areas, it may introduce more constraints and confusion. Um, so it's, it's a great call out to remind folks that 
we have a lot of room to operate within existing regulatory frameworks and minding the guardrails that matter most, patient safety and data integrity. Those are our immovable objects and most guidance and regulation are just nuances around those. It's a great point, Craig. And, and, and Amir, uh, just to clarify, you know, everything that you said is, is 100% accurate. And I, I just want to be clear that I'm not suggesting that, that we need to, you know, just pull the trigger from a corporate perspective and just start doing it. What I'm suggesting is leaders like the people here in this room have the ability to start speaking about it. And that has the ability to create the level of comfort that a guidance could. And so I, it's, it's up to us. So rather than us saying we need clarity, we, uh, we should be the people that are defining what that clarity looks like. And then the FDA, I believe, will pick up on it. I think Scott, we have a lot of power. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I, I think that's a good call to leadership, right? Absolutely. Great range of topics here so far. I see Archana, you've joined us here on the stage. Come on off mute, introduce yourself for anyone who hasn't had the pleasure. Share your thoughts on today's topic. Where are you excited? Where are you worried? What's your, what's your sentiment as we're here mid-year in 23? Thanks, Craig. Um, hi, everybody. My name is Archana Sah, and I am a consultant and advisor for the industry um, on a whole range of clinical development and digital health-related topics. Um, I I had a, um, you know, I think when I look at uh, a recap of, an, of the adoption of DCT um, and the patient engagement topic that we talked about in terms of you know, involving patients in the early uh, trial design process. We, a lot of them are doing that, uh, CROs are doing that, and yet oftentimes the, um, we fall short on some of the, uh, the, the, the uh, putting the right touches that would truly help move the needle. A lot of times, a lot of companies are doing it as a checkbox exercise, as opposed to truly listening to what the patient has. But I want to add another perspective there, where I think we need the patient and a site representative side, side by side that we should be consulting and talking to in terms of um, designing the protocol uh, and, and the practicality of the implementation. Oftentimes, pharma is, is running through the races and uh, for patient engagement and patient voice and cooperation, but they're forgetting that in order to do the patient centricity, um, you know, I, I, you have to think about the sites. You have to bring them along side by side. It's this trifactor of key stakeholders that we need to keep in mind. So I just wanted to remind sort of, I'm, I'm sure it's very obvious to many of you on this platform today, but it's a good reminder that don't forget the sites. You have to bring them along in the process and get their perspectives as well while you're designing. Even simple things like the question Jane asked in the chat, you know, BMI is often a, a barrier for inclusion. Get the site's perspective. Uh, you know, yes, we have brilliant scientists on our staff, but the practicality and the real world scenario, it's the sites that are seeing those. Um, so I just wanted to point that out. And my other comment was regarding, you know, the, the topic, the main topic, the media recap. I mean, what I'm hearing is, is slow adoption. I'm seeing slow adoption of DCTs, uh, primarily a lot of 
interoperability issues and the cost are the two primary reasons that I hear again and again and again. And if you think about, you know, when we made the shift from paper to EDC, it took 10 years to do that. And even now there are occasional cases where stakeholders like pharma and CRO will look at the pros and cons of occasional studies doing paper uh, as opposed to an EDC if cost is a huge constraint. And when you look at all the trials listed on clinicaltrials.gov, you know, almost 67% are smaller biotechs, mom and pop, or, you know, listed studies. And money is, cost is a huge constraint. So I think if the cost of implementing, if the cost of these DCT and digital technologies comes down, implementation gets interoperably solved for, that's when we will see the adoption. And I think that could take 10 years very well, but I think that in my mind, what I, I feel those two are really key to making, bringing the adoption more and more. Thanks so much, Archana. You know, there's uh, uh, some great conversation on LinkedIn. I know that Brad Hightower has sparked on some of these as well. And, you know, it's a great reminder that when it comes to site insights and patient insights, it's not an either or. When it comes to making sure we're supporting stakeholders, it's not an either or. Um, that, as Jane has been saying, when you're designing with the end in mind, these are the key voices, plural, that are needed to be a part of that process. I think in years past, we over-indexed on voice of the site. And um, I'm just being blunt with my view here. When I say that, what I mean is we would ask the physicians, the investigators, what do patients need? And perhaps the uh, pendulum always swings too hard in our industry. We always over-index one direction or the other. And there was a point in time where maybe we started to over-index on messaging about making sure we're capturing the voice of the patient because it was a stakeholder we never asked before. And perhaps that started to signal to investigators that your voice doesn't matter. And I think now, you know, we can start to hopefully balance some of that. As Jane pointed out earlier, we're still not listening to patients and many sites feel like they're not being listened to. Um, but how do we get this pendulum to its proper landing place so that Jane, uh, your vision of, of designing with the end in mind could get realized? That's my cue to you, Jane. Any, uh, any follow-up on that one? Um, well, I do think it is a learn by doing thing and Scott, I am right there with you. Let's just get it done. But we will have to be prepared to pivot and iterate. By the way, we're really good at that already in clinical drug development. I don't know why we can't assume we'll also be good at it using these tools and methods. That might be our last word and our last word, not only for today, but for the first half of the calendar year and our last word for the summer of 23. We're gonna pick things back up again with TGIF DCT here on Clubhouse 
in September. Remember, if you have topics you'd love to see us cover, let Jane, Miles, Amir, Kalali, Craig Lipset know, or drop an email to secretariat at dtra.org. Replays are always available here if you follow the club on the decentralized trials club on clubhouse and we'll continue to add more content through the podcast platforms of your choice just follow the decentralized podcast search for decentralized dtra you'll find us there um, I'd like to thank my friends Jane and Amir today, uh, as well as our, our guests who joined us, Sarah, Kelly, who was voluntold, Scott, and Arjuna, all of you for joining us here today. Amir, last word. Everyone have a great weekend and August off while we're off air. Thank you. Thanks so much, everyone. Stay well.